Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 23, William the Conqueror and the Subjugation of England. This is a start of a new series in a sense on the Norman and Angevin Empire, so you might think of it as episode 2.1. So look, this is an emotional moment everyone, we need to move on from the emotion of probably the biggest state in English history and the end of an era and make no mistake... The changes that would flow from the regime change that followed Hastings will be deep, fundamental and permanent. Although equally, look, the legacy of the Anglo-Saxons will be with us for many centuries in language, in hundreds and shires. They are with us still in terms of landscape and, of course, culturally. In our national story, they will never die. But look, This is then the start of a new series, in a sense, a second series of podcasts, if Anglo-Saxon England was series one. And this new series will cover the Norman and Angevin empires. So, think of this as episode 2.1, in a sense, although it is episode 23, of course, counting from the very start of the history of England. This series covers the period 1066 to 1215 in 37 episodes. For 150 years from here on after 1066, England is just one component in an Anglo-French empire. Now it is the biggest individual one territorially, and probably therefore almost the richest, and it is a kingdom, whereas the other French positions are a series of lordships of various types. And of course, we are English, and we're looking at an English history, so it's not surprising we might have an Anglo-centric view but don't be fooled into thinking that's how the new rulers of the English thought about it, because they did not. The new aristocracy that arrived were colonial overlords, who despised their English peasantry, and whose initial focus was to extract money from their new possessions and employ that money back home in Normandy. The endowment of Norman monasteries with English lands and income was one sure sign of that. The first group of 12 episodes, therefore, 23 to 34, 
is largely about how the new Norman conquerors subdued and organised their new possessions and bring England into a new cultural mainstream, away from the Scandinavian world now and into the French orbit. After we run out of William's sons, we have a nasty succession crisis, the anarchy, between Matilda and the usurper Stephen of Blois. And just before Henry II starts the Angevin Empire, you might note that I take the chance to have three episodes looking at wider society rather than just the political goings-on at the top. So the arrival of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine then in 1155 brings us to the Devil's Brood, the famously fractious Angevins. Eleanor brings with her the riches of Poitou and Henry, the Angevin, possessions men, Tours and Anjou and they dwarf the riches and power of the divided French monarchy. It is a period of great change. The aristocracy slowly becomes an Anglo-French one rather than just Norman. The basis of English common law is established. The modern state starts to be created. There are crusades and all of that stuff. The period ends with another fundamental shift. John loses most of the French possessions. England at last once more becomes the core focus of the monarchy and the kingdom. And Magna Carta, of course, marks a crucial shift in the relationship between King and his lords. We are ready again then for a largely insular history and politics from the Plantagenets. So, I hope that gives you a brief overview of Series 2, The Normans and Nangevins. I hope you enjoy it, and on with the action. So when I was a lad, the story after Hastings was that William had a rather easy ride after 1066 that England collapsed with surprising ease. Surely we should have expected a heroic struggle over decades with battle after battle before William was finally able to secure his new kingdom against the plucky Anglo-Saxons. As we'll see in this week's episode, in fact, he did have to work harder than it might at first appear and as I was told when I were a lad. But it's true also to say that resistance to the new regime was weak and disjointed. One principal reason for that is that there's a lack of credible leaders for the English to rally around. Edgar the Atheling, the man proclaimed by another crowned king, was only 15. All of the Godwinson brothers had either died at Hastings, Harold's sons had fled to Ireland or were captured. The earls Edwin and Morcar might have provided some resistance, but they had no claim to the throne and no one to unite behind. We talked last time about some of the military advantages the Normans held in cavalry and mobility, but it was the castle now that was to be the most significant. The use of castles is so closely associated with the Normans that the chroniclers actually often use the term castleman when talking about them. We tend to think about castles as defensive structures and historians have tended to emphasise their importance as administrative centres much more recently in a more nuanced interpretation of their role, which is very intelligent. But make no mistake, these castles at this time were instruments of oppression. And in this context, they were very much used as the basis for offence as well as defence. Castles allowed the development of a strong point in hostile country, and over the crucial period of the normal settlement, they made the absolute fundamental difference between success and failure. This Norman conquest was not a massive folk movement like the 6th century or the 9th century. 
The wonder is that a relatively small number of people, in fact a tiny number of people, managed to dominate the much more populous English. The number of invaders are in the low tens of thousands and maybe at most 1% of the population, so their, ex- their success is extraordinary. And the castle played a central role in that. In William's reign alone, the Normans may have built over 200 castles and of these over 90 were converted to stone later and can still be seen. By 1100, there are over 3,000 castles in England. They made a massive difference for the Normans at a time when there was almost no effective technology to overcome them. I guess another reason I'd advanced for the disjointed resistance was the tradition of kingship and the public relationship between the Anglo-Saxon people and their king. Although alien to us, William may well have been seen as perfectly legitimate. Anglo-Saxon kings could well be chosen from other than the eldest son and from other branches of the royal family. We tend, I think, to view history through a lens that is deeply coloured by nationalism and forget that nationalism is a largely 19th century construct and even a basic sense of English patriotism would have been diluted by a greater sense of loyalty to local lord, village and region. To many English thanes and churls, there was simply a new master in town, therefore, possibly. We should not downplay the cataclysmic impact of the conquest and the pain reflected by the English chroniclers. But initially, at least, there was a chance that by some, William could have been accepted as nothing more than a kink in the royal line. So, for example, Wigod was the thane of Wallingford, who had seen the way his bread was going to be buttered shortly, and he'd let William, with his army, cross the River Thames on his way to London. He was simply looking out for personal advantage. To add to that, once William was invested as king, the basic inclination of the lay and ecclesiastical nobility was towards loyalty, order and obedience. People like Edwin and Morcar very probably also thought this was where their best personal interests lay, There are some indications that Morcar's eventual revolt came once he realised that William was not going to allow him to marry into his family as he thought he would. And the experience of Knut had been of an invader very willing to allow the existing nobility to share in the rule of the new kingdom and create a new state that wasn't dominated by the new nobility only, but shared by the old and the new. This doesn't happen in England, but it wasn't clear that would be the case for quite a few years. In the end, as we know, the old English nobility is replaced to the most remarkable degree. By the end of William's reign, all the major positions are held by Normans. There are no English earls. The major landowners are overwhelmingly Norman too. It is a topic we'll come back to, but it wasn't obvious, is the point, to the English that this would be the case in 1066. And actually, it's not clear this was William's original intention either. There's no doubt that William was driven by a need to reward his followers and his desire to wring as much money as possible from England to feed his avarice. But within those parameters, the signs are that he intended to reach an accommodation and balance between his Norman and English lords. This doesn't happen, because in fact, the leading English earls find it impossible to serve their new master, and in his turn, William was to find them deeply untrustworthy. And to return to that general feeling that England was conquered rather easily, in fact, 
The history of the first 10 years of William's reign is one of continual revolt and firefighting, but the resistance was not coordinated. It was never really able to get off the ground. The leaders of the revolts were mainly concerned with their own self-interest without any wider ambitions or patriotism. But we should have no illusions about the fact that William would never have felt entirely secure in England and would have felt severely threatened at many moments. So let us go back to the new and shiny Westminster, where we left William standing for one very rare time in his life, pale and trembling as his soldiers fire London, mistakenly afraid the natives had risen in revolt. As I say, his first approach was to work with the local leaders. He was very clearly distrustful of the secular leaders like Earls Morcar and Edwin, so they kept their lands, but their positions as Earls was largely honorary, and he demanded hostages of them and kept them physically close, on the keep-your-friends-close-and-your-enemies-closer principle. He did seem perfectly willing to rely on the old English ecclesiastical leaders, so Stigand remained Archbishop of Canterbury, despite the fact he was clearly in breach of the rules of holding multiple offices and would have been strongly disapproved of by the Norman Church. Eldred, the Archbishop of York, who had already played the peacemaker, he was made a Viceroy of Northumbria. Ethelwy, the Abbot of Evesham, and Wolston, Bishop of Winchester, were given similar positions in Mercia. Situation in the far north was much more complicated and uncertain, so William appointed a man called Chopsy, a supporter of Tostig, to be Earl in Bamborough. But he was quickly dispatched by Oswulf, the descendant of Uchard of Bebenberg, who you will remember from previous episodes. But sometime during 1067, we then find a man called Gospatrick as Earl in Bamborough. Gospatrick seems to have been from Scotland and to have earned his position by the clever and innovatory mechanism of offering William lots of cash. He knew his man. And William seems to have been reasonably relaxed about his position at this point, because at the start of 1067, he made sure he had things set up to his liking. He ordered a castle to be built on the site of the current White Tower of London. He made his half-brother Odo the Earl of Kent and basically unofficially put him in charge and then he set off back home, back to Normandy, before Easter 1067. This was William's idea of having a good time because he now went on a procession through Normandy with the conquered English leaders Stigand, Edwin Morcar and Edgar the Atheling in tow, not in chains, but they might as well have been. Before he went, he'd made sure that his line of return was secure, building castles at Dover and Pevensey. William didn't return to England until the end of the year, and it's a pattern that will be repeated for the rest of his life. Normandy was his home, and that was his main priority. England was a sideshow, a milsh cow to be, well, milched. Back in England, his confidence does seem to have been well-placed. There are two hotspots. The first was caused by an Anglo-Saxon thane called Eadric the Wild. Eadric's motivation for rebellion, like so many, was to be the removal of some of his lands in Herefordshire by a Norman called Richard Fitz Scrob. What a great name. Scrob? Come here, Scrob. That's my dad, sir. Anyway, Eadric was having none of it, and he and some of his Welsh mates attacked Hereford Castle... They had no luck, though, taking the castle, which is a common story, and so retreated into Wales and spent the next two years causing the normals trouble without causing them any serious existential problem, 
if you see what I mean. The other one was in the southwest, where Harold's mother Gutha Thorkelsdottir refused to give up the city of Exeter. Late in the year, William Julie arrived back in England, and he must have been pretty pleased at the way things were going. I'd like to bet he'd expected something a bit more dramatic, so he was disposed to be reasonably diplomatic towards Gutha. I mean, reasonably on William's term, which has its very own scale and measurement system. So he did his normal trick of having some poor citizen mutilated in full sight of the wars, all fairly standard, but when that didn't have the desired effect, he negotiated. Gutha, Julie, sailed away into exile in Flanders. Exeter had to submit, but with no punitive conditions. William promptly had a castle built and was able to relax. In April 68, he felt happy enough to bring his wife Matilda over to join him, and in May she was crowned as his queen in England. Everything looked good. In the background, of course, the real revolution was going on, as steadily the lands held by English thanes were taken over by Norman invaders. It's difficult to know exactly how fast this happens and precisely what the process was, but because of the Doomsday Survey, we have an extremely good idea of the end result. And by 1086, the vast majority of English thanes had been dispossessed of their lands. The numbers are truly staggering. By 1086, 190 lay Norman nobles held 54% of English land. It is difficult to know exactly how far this went down the social scale. The English gave themselves Norman names pretty quickly, and many thanes would have become knights even if that meant moving down the social scale and having to give homage for land they'd previously held as of right. But in terms of land ownership, English names are almost entirely absent from Doomsday. There are only two thanes we are sure continue to hold land directly from the king as tenants in his chief, Colswain of Lincoln and Thurkill of Arden. The rest was split between Norman barons of the church and land that William held in his own hands as the king's domain. The way William did this was to create a number of mega-rich barons, the kind of people who would have appeared in the Sunday Times rich list. There were about 150 baronies of this kind. The biggest winners, like his half-brother Robert Count of Mortain, ended up with a barony of 800 manors. Others of his known companions at Hastings, like Hugh de Grandmenil, were handsomely rewarded with over a hundred manors, right down to the relatively modest estates such as Gilbert de Bretteville with 19 manors. In general, these men were simply given the land holdings of existing Anglo-Saxon thanes, and this meant that the holdings were widely spread throughout the country, which is just the way William liked, liked it not to create too many overmighty barons. Though there are exceptions to this, which we'll come to, like the Lords of the Marches. Initially, William probably simply took over the land of the thanes who had died at Hastings, and you can bet there were plenty to go round, because a lot had croaked. Then, as more of the remaining major Anglo-Saxons earls fell foul of him, more lands were added to the pot. But even with this first bunch, picture the scene repeated presumably all over the country of a group of mailed Norman soldiers appearing in the village, chucking the old thanes' family into the street, building a castle, and generally setting up camp. I'd imagine that as this spreads, dissatisfaction amongst thanes grew. This was colonisation read in tooth and claw. One of the better chroniclers of the age was a chap called Odoric Vitalis, writing in the 12th century, born of a Norman father and English mother. He wrote, Foreigners 
grew wealthy with the spoils of England, while her own sons were either shamefully slain or driven as exiles to wander hopelessly through foreign kingdoms. Then there is the matter of how the land was held. This was a fantastic opportunity for William to start from scratch and design his new state exactly the way he wanted it. What he does is to make sure that it is absolutely clear that all lands and all rights came from the king. Nobody has any land held because it belongs to them. They are simply getting the use of the land in return for a set of military services. This is a fundamental change in the structure and culture of society, and it is difficult to underplay its importance. In Anglo-Saxon England, many thanes and indeed many churls held their land as of their own right. The service owned the state came from that land as a matter of public service, not because they held the land from the king. All of those people had therefore immediately been robbed of land and status. They were now land holders, not land owners. Now, some would make deals to gain possession of their land, and if so, they regained it on lesser terms, and they now held it on that feudal basis, a relationship with the Lord on terms that involved personal homage and land tenure. Whereas before, the relationship with the Lord was based on terms that were purely personal. So I think it's important to remember all this background strife bubbling away as we go through the rebellions and dissatisfaction of the next few years. Added to all of that was the personal disappointment of the individuals involved as they discover that their new king is not going to give them the influence they once had and that his Norman mates are the ones who really count. No pun intended. And one more thing before I get on with it. The Norman lords themselves also had to adjust to the style in England. Now, in the main, they do just fine, given that many of them are now rich beyond their wildest dreams. But life is not the way it was back home. William was very careful to hold on to the central powers of the Anglo-Saxon monarchy, which had been allowed to slip in Ducal Normandy. Just for example, he held on hard to the office of sheriff, giving it the rights to administer justice anywhere, including the baron's lands, and making sure the office didn't become hereditary. And this gets up a few noses. He also imposed a much higher level of military service than they were used to in Normandy. Though, look, I don't think any of them were on the breadline, so obviously I wouldn't waste any sympathy on the poor lambs. OK, so in 1068, then, things begin to get a little hotter. Edwin and Morcar had had enough of being dragged around like lions in a menagerie and raised their standard in revolt. Edgar the Atheling does the same, and Gospatric, Earl of Northumbria, joins right in. The rebels were clearly getting support from Malcolm, the King of Scotland, and he was married to Edgar the Atheling's sister Margaret, later to become canonised as Saint Margaret. Coincidentally, the sons of Harold Godwinson launch a raid from Ireland to the southwest at the same time. So all of this sounds serious, but you get the impression William hardly broke sweat. He moved fast, struck north with an army, cut Edwin and Morcar in Mercia off from the north. They quickly said, oh, sorry, sorry, and apologised to William, and he forgave them. As he now marched north, he established castles at places like Warwick and Nottingham, and by the time he reached York, the revolt had disappeared into pretty much nothing. Edgar and Gospatrick fled to Malcolm in Scotland. William had bared his teeth and they'd legged it in terror. But they'd be back for another go in 1069, worry not. 
William realised that his authority was not yet firmly stamped on Mercia and in Northumbria, and he now appointed his own man to be earl there, Robert of Comines. Robert gathered a substantial force of 700 household troops, which you'd have thought be enough for most emergencies, and he set off north in January for Durham. As he travelled, he was met by the Bishop of Durham, Ethelwyn, who came with some friendly warnings. Look, Robert, he might have said, just go easy here. Things are still very edgy. You need to be diplomatic and win people round and be aware of knives appearing in your back, by the way. Be aware of treachery. After wondering what the word diplomatic might have meant, Robert sent his men in with their hobnail boot with as much sensitivity as a bull in a china shop. They generally sat around alienating the locals to the point of murdering a few of them for good measure all of which proved that Ethelwyn's warnings had been quite justified. The Northumbrians in Durham exploded into violence and set around murdering Robert's men. Despite Ethelwyn's warnings, Robert was taken completely by surprise, secure in the confidence that his Norman soldiers would be able to deal with whatever the despised Anglo-Saxons could throw at them, and they paid the price, as Robert of Hoveden recorded. So great was the multitude of the slain that nearly every spot in the city was filled with blood. Only one Frenchman escaped. Robert himself had taken refuge in the bishop's house. The rebels couldn't storm the place, so they simply torched it. And Robert and Camine and his men were burned alive. By this stage, Athelwyn, disgusted by Robert's stupidity and ignorance, <coughs> <clears throat> by this stage, Athelwyn, disgusted by Robert's stupidity and arrogance, had switched sides. He'd sent messages to Gospatrick and Edgar in Scotland and closed Durham against the king. Now, William had other things in his entree and couldn't react straight away because the sons of Harold had again raided the southwestern Ireland, although they were eventually driven off. And actually, they'd done nothing to increase their popularity with the locals, given the damage that they inflicted that actually made themselves the new enemy. Edgar Gospatrick and his allies knew their best chance for independence lay in the north. It was reassuringly distant from Normandy and well within reach of their principal ally, Malcolm, in Scotland. It also had a history of autonomy within the English kingdom, dominated by powerful earls, and the Scandinavian tradition there opened up further possibilities. In 1069, though, they realised that they needed to do considerably better than the previous year, and they had three further groups they needed to bring with them. The first was Waltheof. Waltheof was the youngest son of Earl Seward of Northumbria. He'd been made an Earl of land around Huntingdon and Northamptonshire in 1065. William had treated him generously when he arrived, allowing him to keep his lands and status. But bringing Waltheof over to their side would give the rebels the credentials they needed to bring the Northumbrians over to them too. And for whatever reason, they were able to talk the 19-year-old Waltheof into joining them. OK, the second group were the Scandinavians. Because despite my grand assertions that the end of the Viking Age came in 1066 with the death of Harold Hadrada, the Danes seemed to lack that kind of 2020 hindsight and hadn't been reading the script. So they continued to think they could roll back time and relive the days of Canute the Great. Svein Estrithson, very difficult name to pronounce, Svein Estrithson, now felt secure on the throne of Denmark and ready to challenge. 
And it's not until we get to the death of his son, Canute II, actually, that the English kings can turn their back on the Danes with confidence. So, Svein therefore assembled a massive fleet of 240 ships, that's maybe 10,000 men, and he sent his brother, Osborn, and his sons, Harold and Canute. The third group were Earls Edwin and Morcar, but this time, possibly fatally, the Earls refused to take part. So here's the plan. Simple enough. Take York, proclaim Edgar King. We never get the chance to find out whether this was the extent of their ambitions, but I think we suspect not, and that London and the South would have been next. Things kicked off in September 1069 when the Danish fleet followed the traditional route to the north, appearing off the southeast coast and raiding Dover, Ipswich and Norwich as they went north. But the results were rather disappointing by comparison with the past because the raiders kept meeting the walls of Norman castles. But by September the 8th, they appeared in the mouth of the River Humber where they were joined by the rebel leaders Edgar, Gospatric and Waltheof. So now, William faced a threat of considerably larger scale than before. As always, with northern revolts, the focus was on York, and the Danes and the rebels attacked the castle there. The Normans were led by William Mallet, one of the men who'd fought with William at Hastings, and a major landowner. They fought with determination, firing all the houses around the castle to make sure the Danes couldn't use the materials to fill up the ditch. But the rebels stormed the city on the 21st of September, and the Normans were overwhelmed. Many of them were killed, only William Mallet and his daughter were allowed to go free. With England in flames, Eadric the Wild realised that William had trouble on his hands. He took full advantage, attacking Shrewsbury with the help of his Welsh allies and the rebels from Chester. So, William gathered his army and he marched north. Florence of Worcester describes his mood by saying that he had a heavy heart. Roger of Hoveden, on the other hand, described his mood as one of extreme irritation, which is a lovely understatement, given what's coming. Because William had now clearly decided that it was no more Mr Nice Guy, that extreme irritation was one thing, but extreme brutality was now going to be the flavour of his response. He started with York, and his name alone made the Danes withdraw to the other side of the Humber, William detached a force to watch them, then descended with lightning speed down to Shropshire, defeated Eadric, forced him and his allies to scuttle back to Wales. While he was away, the rebels had once more occupied York, but William had no desire to see his men die against its walls, so instead he began what would become known as the Harrying of the North, and which would be the one thing that seems to have troubled his conscience for the rest of his life. William started to destroy everything and everyone that could bring help and food to his enemies. By devastating the area around York, William deprived the rebels of any food and supplies, forced them to leave the city. Meanwhile, he sent messages to Osborne the Dane and offered him a deal. Lots of money and you leave. Osborne leapt to the chance. He had already demonstrated a complete lack of desire to actually fight the Normans anyway, and there was no food, and the rebels were probably whining, so good time to leave. Back in Denmark, Svein was absolutely furious. He outlawed Osborn and set sail to join and lead the fleet himself, but it was way too late for the Northumbrian rebels by that time. They'd been chopped off at the knees, and they ran before William's fury. 
William celebrated Christmas in York with studied and calculated prompt and largesse. He wore the crown and regalia which he had brought up specially from London. All around him, the people of York and the surrounding countryside were starving, and his message was to them and any future rebels, don't take me on because if you do, the result will be your destruction and death of your people on a monumental scale. After Christmas, he just kept going north, killing, destroying, burning, ravaging as he went, destroying crops, killing livestock, burning villages. The harrying of the north outraged and horrified even William's most ardent supporters in a hard age. Now, no one seems to have a problem with the odd mutilation or blinding here or there, but this was different. The most staid of chroniclers bakes into flowing prose to condemn his brutality. I put some of the longer quotes from Roger of Hoveden on the website, but here's the odd snippet. Roger has just described the devastation and now goes on to describe the impact. A famine prevailed to such a degree that, compelled by hunger, men ate human flesh, and that of dogs and cats, and whatever was repulsive. And again, it was dreadful to behold human corpses rotting in the houses, streets and high roads, for there were not enough left to bury them. Odric Vitalis is another chronicler, generally very well disposed to William, though quite balanced. He wrote of this, The king stopped at nothing to hunt his enemies. He cut down many people and destroyed homes and land. Nowhere else had he shown such cruelty. To his shame, William made no effort to control his fury, punishing the innocent with the guilty. He ordered that crops and herds, tools and food be burned to ashes. More than a hundred thousand people perished of hunger. I have often praised William in this book, but I can say nothing good about this brutal slaughter. God will punish him. Odric also recorded that even William himself came to realise the depth of his crime. He records William's words on his deathbed. I attacked the English of the northern shires like a lion. I ordered their houses and corn with all their belongings to be burned without exception and large herds of cattle and beasts of burden to be destroyed wherever they were found. It was there I took revenge on masses of people by subjecting them to a cruel famine and by doing so, alas, I became the murderer of many thousands of that fine race. Can't quite see William saying that fine race, but never mind, let's believe Oderick. In point of fact, the harrying, though worst in the north, was also carried out in 1070 through large swathes of Mercia as well, and the evidence of the depth of the destruction is clear in the Doomsday Book. Vast areas remained uncultivated and depopulated even 15 years later, many recorded simply as waste. The value of the estates plummeted because there was no, no one left in many of them to work it. William had made his point, and hate it or loathe it, it worked pretty well. Edgar fled back to his brother Lawrence Scotland, Waltheof and Gospatrick submitted to William, and hang me if they don't get a kiss on both cheeks, a chuck under the chin, and are told not to worry about it. Both were restored to their earldoms. Waltheof was even promised marriage to William's niece, Judith. Presumably in the midst of all this chaos and slaughter, William felt he still needed their local knowledge and influence and was prepared to give it one more try. He would not be giving them another one. Meanwhile, remember the Bishop Elthwin in Durham? 
while he ran around like a headless chicken for a while, disinterring the body of St Cuthbert and running for it with the bones of the saint, then coming back to Durham. But in the end, he died alone of starvation in a Norman prison. William may have regretted the harrying on his deathbed, but in 1070 he showed every sign of deep satisfaction of a job well done. He paraded his army in May at Salisbury and then paid off most of his mercenaries, which shows either a certain coolness, or maybe he knew that after four years of occupation he could now rely on his feudal levies being forthcoming. He was confident that resistance was crushed. He was wrong, as it happens, but not very wrong. None of the rebellions that followed would threaten as much as this one, and he would be perfectly able to cope with them. After 1070, William began to focus on setting his kingdom up in the way he wanted it, with the people he trusted. And those people did not include the English. Next time, we will hear how the remaining English earls gather their remaining strength and plan to recover the influence and power they had lost, while in the East, a folk hero appears in the Fens. Which is all something to look forward to, of course. And until then, thank you very much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. (laughs) 